Amen. When you're teaching through the Bible, uh, it, when you teach verse by verse through the Bible, it's good because you have to actually deal with difficult sections of the scriptures. You have to deal with difficult theological topics. And this morning, we are going to deal with one such controversial topic, the topic of election. You might know it as predestination. Now, the doctrine of election or predestination is the teaching that God, before the foundation of the world, he chose believers to be saved in Christ. Now, this, this doctrine, this teaching has caused a lot of controversy in the history of the church. I can remember the first time that I found out about this doctrine, I was appalled. I was like, how can this be true? I mean, I thought God loves the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And how could this be true, that God chooses people? I mean, that, that seems so unloving and seems so unfair that God would choose some and not choose others. It seems so unloving and so unfair. Maybe you've had similar thoughts about the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. So how, what, are we, what are we to think about this teaching? What are we to think about this teaching of, of predestination or election? Well, on one end, you have what's called hard determinism. Now, hard determinism elevates the sovereignty of God. It elevates the sovereignty of God, and it sort of says that God is sovereign, which he is, and it elevates the sovereignty of God to the exclusion of human responsibility. This is sort of like hyper-Calvinism. So human beings just become robots. They sort of just become little puppets on a string. That's obviously wrong. On the other hand, you have hard libertarianism. Hard libertarianism, it elevates the free will of man above the sovereignty of God. And in the 1990s, there was this movement called open theism. Open theism was a movement of, of hyper-libertarianism, and it taught that you know, the future is open, that God doesn't really know the future. He has a pretty good idea, but he doesn't really know the future because the future is open, and, and they were seeking to preserve real relationships with God. But obviously, that is not biblically correct. So obviously, you reject these two extremes, and then what you have in the middle is you have these two things that the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that God is sovereign, that God is king, that he has a plan and a will, and he works all things according to his plan and his will. But the Bible also teaches that man is responsible, that human beings have a free will, and therefore their free choices matter. What you choose matters, and you will be judged for your choices. And these two these two doctrines in the Bible, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, are like train tracks that run all the way through the Scripture. As um, C.H. Spurgeon once said, you don't need to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility because you don't need to reconcile friends. <laughs> They're not enemies. You don't need to reconcile these two things. The Bible teaches them. Now, in my study, I've come to this understanding that uh, you know, God does... Jesus did die for the sins of humanity. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I believe that. I also believe that the Bible does teach, secondly, up on the PowerPoint there, Matt, the Bible does teach that whosoever will may come. I do believe that the gospel offer is open and free to all people. But I also think that when you look at the passages of Scripture, when you look in the Bible, you will see that the Bible does teach that those who come to Christ realize that they have been chosen by God before the foundation of the, of the world. The Bible does teach that when you come to Christ, you look back and you realize you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, and therefore your salvation is not anything for you to boast about. It doesn't rest on you, it rests on God. 
as uh, Billy Graham used to say, on the doorway into heaven is written these words, whosoever will may come, but when you enter into that door, you look back, and written on the back of the door is chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, I know that for many people here today, I think it's a real shame when it comes to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, because, you know, the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist that, that ever lived, he was the one who taught most on the doctrine of election, on the doctrine of predestination. And he didn't teach it because he was trying to be controversial and start little arguments between young adults over predestination and election. Or he didn't teach it because he was just being speculative. No, he taught it because it's an important truth. It's an important truth to grasp. It's a real encouragement. It's a real encouragement. Look down in your Bibles in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. After thanking God for his work in the Thessalonian church, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God. What an expression of the church. You are loved by God. We know, brothers, loved by God, that God has chosen you. You see, this was not a source of speculation or, or a source of controversy for the Apostle Paul, but rather the fact that God had chosen the Thessalonians was actually a, a source of encouragement for Paul. Remember, we learned last week that this church at Thessalonica had been founded within a short space of time and amidst persecution. And so to know that God was really at work in this church was a real source of encouragement for Paul. But it also would have been a real source of encouragement for the Thessalonians. These people who Paul had pastored and who, were, who he was mentoring through this letter, to hear Paul say, you are chosen by God, would have been an awesome source of encouragement. You know, um, have you ever been chosen for anything? Have you ever been chosen for anything special? How do you feel when you're chosen? You feel special, don't you? When you're chosen for something. Like, um, I remember when I was 12 years old, my dad was going on this trip around the oil fields in Queensland. He had, this, uh, he had this friend from Dallas, Texas, who was taking this trip through the oil fields of Queensland. And one night, he turned to me in front of, you know, we're having family dinner, and he turned to me and he said, Timon, I want to take you with me. And I spent three weeks with my dad. I felt so special that he chose me. You know, this is how this doctrine is supposed to make us feel. It's not supposed to be a doctrine that we're supposed to argue and fight about. It's not supposed to be a doctrine that we're supposed to speculate over who's chosen and who's not chosen. But rather, it's supposed to be a source of great encouragement for us. So this morning, as you're sitting there, can you please do something for me? Can you please put aside all of the thoughts that maybe some of you are thinking of right now, where you're thinking, I'm going to come up and talk to Timon afterwards about, about where he's wrong with the doctrine of election. Can you actually put that all aside... And just this morning, see the doctrine for what it is. For what it is. You know, you may have heard of the terms. Have you heard of the term Calvinist before? For some of you, that's a bad word. Have you heard of the term Arminianist? Arminian before? Both of those terms. You know, you know, it's interesting that both Calvinists and Arminians, they both believe in the doctrine of election. They both believe in it. The only difference between Calvinism and Arminians is the condition or basis of of the, the doctrine of election. For Arminians, they believe that God chose on the basis of who would choose him. He looks down the corridor of time and he chooses on the basis of who cho would choose him, whereas Calvinists believe that God chose just unconditionally. 
on the basis of his unconditional grace and love. But yet just set that aside for a moment. Set that aside and see the beauty of this doctrine. That you are chosen by God. That you are loved by God before the foundation of the world. You know, we can talk, you know, it would take a long time to actually talk about the inner workings of that. And we can talk about that some other time. But just, just rest in that truth. That you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And what Paul does in verses 5 to verse 10 is he actually unpacks, he unpacks some reasons for his confidence as to why he knows that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. You'll see in verse 5 there, it starts off with the word because. He's given some reasons why he's so confident that God is actually at work in this church and they are loved by God and chosen by God. And I want to unpack these reasons for you this morning. These reasons for you this morning. Reason number one, signpost number one as to why Paul was so confident that the church at Thessalonica was a genuine work of God and that they were chosen by God. Here is reason number one. It's because of how the gospel came to them. Because of how the gospel came to them. Look down in verse 4 again. Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, Paul says, the reason I know that God is at work is because of how the gospel came to you. It didn't just come in word only. Now, we learnt last week in Acts 17 that Paul did use words. That when he went into Thessalonica, he went into the synagogue and he opened up the Old Testament to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But he says it didn't just come in words. It didn't just come with logic. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that the gospel came in power? Well, this might rattle a few feathers here this morning. But the word power, power, most commonly in the New Testament refers to God's wonder-working power. His wonder-working power. And so it seems that when Paul came into Thessalonica and preached the gospel, God attended his preaching of the gospel with miracles. He prayed for the sick and they were healed. He prayed for the demon-possessed and they were released. So obviously the question is, is should we expect miracles to accompany our preaching of the gospel today? Well, I think that the Apostle Paul had a unique anointing as an apostle. We read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is comparing himself to false apostles, these people who were claiming to be apostles in Corinth, Paul said, he said, you've got to realize, guys, that the sign of the apostle, the sign of the true apostle was done among you. And he's speaking about legitimate signs and wonders that were done in Corinth. So it seems that as an apostle, God attested to Paul's apostolic authority by performing signs and wonders, true miracles through Paul's hands. And so I'm not expecting anyone today to have that same level of anointing today. I'm not expecting me to walk past lame people and say, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I'm not expecting that. But while I'm not expecting that, I think it is true that when God is working, when he's working in power, he will actually attend the preaching of the gospel by working in people's lives to prove that he is the living and true God. You know, when I've been to Nepal, none of my Nepalese brothers in Nepal, none of them claim to be an apostle. 
None of them claim to have this hotline to God where they can perform miracles on will. But they do pray. They do pray and ask God to heal people and God in his sovereignty because God still is a supernatural working God. You know, he still works supernatural ways. They pray for people and they're healed. I asked Pastor Chandra and I said, how, how has the gospel been spread in Nepal? And he said, primarily through praying for people and God, God heals people. And this shows people that the true living God is real as opposed to their idols, their fake idols. But Paul says, my gospel didn't just come in power, it came in the Holy Spirit. You see, when the gospel comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching becomes riveting. The preacher fades into the background and God speaks to people's hearts. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, people come in and the secrets of their hearts are exposed and they fall down and they say, God is among these people. But Paul says it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, people are convicted of their sin. They realize that they're sinners and the scales fall from their eyes and they realize they need Christ. You know, every single Sunday when I stand up before you here, I am praying, Lord, attend to my preaching with your spirit and attend to my preaching with full conviction because reason is not enough. Logic is not enough. Good illustrations is not enough. The perfect sermon outline is not enough. Careful rhetorical devices is not enough. In order to change the heart, God needs to work. God needs to work. And you can know that you were chosen by God because God worked in your heart. The gospel came with power and your hard heart was broken up and you saw Christ for who he truly is, glorious and wonderful, and you saw yourself as a sinner and you came and you surrendered yourself to Christ. But not only does Paul say that one of the signs of a genuine work of God is how the gospel came. He also says that a genuine work of God is seen by how the gospel was received, how the gospel was received. Uh, look down in verse 5, Paul says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now, before Paul came into Thessalonica, he was in Philippi. And in Philippi, what happened to Paul, Timothy, and Silas? Or Paul and Silas? What happened? They were put in prison. And what were they doing while they were in prison? They were singing, hallelujah! They were worshipping God while they were in prison. And Paul says, Paul says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We learnt last week that as soon as this church was planted, Jason and other brothers were dragged before the city officials and they were persecuted for the faith. But Paul says, in spite of the affliction, you had this supernatural joy. You see, not only can you see a work of God by the way the gospel comes, but you can see a work of God by the way the gospel is received. It is received with a supernatural joy. A joy that transcends your circumstances. You know, this past week I was talking to a friend of mine, Joy Singh. And Joy, he grew up in a Sikh family. And as soon as he became a Christian, um, they actually captured Joy. And they took him and they blindfolded him and they beat him up. 
But Joy said, because of my joy in Jesus, I would not renounce Christ. Another friend of mine, Pastor Chandran, he didn't grow up a Christian. He actually grew up a um, Hindu. When he went to university, he became a communist. And then he went to a Bible study to try and convince these Christians that they were wrong. <laughs> but you know, when you study the Bible, what happens? God speaks. <laughs> and he became, a, he became a believer. And he said one day they were, they were studying the word and the police came. And they arrested all of the people in the Bible study and they put them in chains. And they led them down through the streets to shame them. But Pastor Chandran said, it didn't matter because I had this joy. I counted it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. You see, you can know that God's at work in your life because you have supernatural joy. You have the joy of really knowing Jesus. I remember when I first became a believer in Jesus, I just was set aglow. <laughs> I had this joy. It didn't matter about my circumstances. It didn't matter what was going on. I had joy, this joy of knowing Jesus. Now, as a Christian, your joy does go up and down based on numerous things that will happen in your life. But you still have a supernatural joy, a joy that God has given you despite your circumstances. You have this joy of knowing Jesus. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. As Peter says, though we do not see him, yet we believe in him and we are filled with what? What are you filled with, people? Come on, what are you filled with? Joy. joy, joy unspeakable. Joy unspeakable, Peter says. A mark, a mark that you are actually, that there's a work of God is that the way the gospel is received is it was received with joy. Joy comes into your life because Jesus has come into your life. But not only does Paul say that a genuine work of God is seen by the way the gospel came, and the way the gospel is received, but the difference that the gospel makes. Look down in verse 7, Paul says, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia in the Greek region. For not only the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we don't need to say anything, Paul says. You see, not only do you know that there's a work of God by the way that the gospel comes and by the way the gospel is received, but by the difference the gospel makes, you now have a testimony. And people can see your testimony. That's what Paul is saying. We didn't have to tell anyone. Everyone saw the evidence that you were changed. You had a testimony. You were not the same person before, after you came to Christ that you were before. I was talking to my dad last night. My dad's an evangelist. He just... He just preaches the gospel to everyone. <laughs> and he was telling me last night how he had, had, like, had this opportunity to lead two people to Christ this week. It was amazing. And my dad told me one time that he went into Burham Pub. Now, he went in to get a soft drink, all right? Just went in to get a soft drink. And, um, and the publican turned to him and he said, Garnet, I want to learn about Christianity because the guys you have been doing Bible study with are not the same that they were before. They are changed. They are different. You see, you know that there's a work of God because there is a testimony. You're not the same. You're different. You're not the same person as you once were. You are now changed when you come to Christ. 
Which leads me to my fourth, my fourth sign. The fourth sign of a genuine work of God is the way the gospel comes. The way the gospel was received, it's received with joy. The difference the gospel makes. And finally, the change that the gospel brings. The change the gospel brings. Down in verses 9 and 10, Paul recalls the conversion of the Thessalonians. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, apparently, uh, Thessalonica is only 50 miles away from Mount Olympus. You know, the the place of the gods. Apparently on a, on a, on a clear day, you could see from uh, Thessalonica, Mount Olympus. And idol worship in the first century was part and parcel of life. The city of Thessalonica was filled with idols. For example, if you wanted to go to a restaurant, you would go to a temple. And the temples of the first century were sort of like restaurants where they would take the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and they would cook it up. And so that's the only way you could really get hot, cooked meat in the first century, by going to the temple, the pagan temple. Also, these pagan temples, in these pagan temples, obvious business and all of that sort of stuff was associated with the pagan temples. There were these guilds, these trade guilds. And so if you were a silversmith or if you were a goldsmith, if you had some sort of trade, you needed to be plugged into a temple because that's how you would get work. But what Paul says... As he says, the gospel came in such power that these people were converted. They turned from their life of idolatry and they turned to serve the living and true God. Jesus, King Jesus, became the one who they were in allegiance with. Sorry, I just have a piece of paper that I need to use. Behind my Bible? Fantastic. Just wanted to read out a letter that was given to um, John Stott from a Burmese missionary about what happened when this Burmese missionary came to this village people and when he presented the gospel to them. Let me read it to you. It reads, the, the missionary says, We explained to them, this tribal people, the pure, simple gospel and Christ's lordship over the devil and all evil forces, after which they were counseled to confess and forsake their evil deeds and receive Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And with brokenness and tears and guilt, they responded. Then we burned up the charms and the ambulance, took a wood-cutting knife, and broke down a spirit's house made of bamboo and wood, claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ and singing Christ's victory songs. And putting all of ourselves under the blood of the Lamb and the rule of the Holy Spirit and claiming God's protection. You know, sometimes I think it's pretty easy to see idols in other cultures. It's pretty easy to see idols in cultures where you have literal idols of wood and stone. You know, when you go to Nepal, there is a big statue of Lord Shiva, gold statue of Lord Shiva that stands over Kathmandu Valley. And we can think that there are no idols in our culture. But Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums. 
where sacrifice must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life and ward off disaster? What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, that was the Greek god of love in the ancient world, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incest to Artemis, and that was the Greek god of power, of the hunt, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. You see, you know that God's at work because in conversion, people will turn from their idols and they will turn to Jesus, King Jesus. They'll turn to serve Him and He will become their all-consuming passion in their life, not just in animistic cultures. Not just in cultures that have literal idols, but in our culture. People who are truly converted will turn from the idols of our culture and they'll say, King Jesus, you are Lord of my life. You know, growing up, when I was converted, I, was, I grew up in a Christian family and the idols that I had in my life were firstly the idol of sport as a teenager and then I had the idol of girls. That's what I lived for as a girlfriend. And then I had the idol of, of music. But when I was converted to Jesus, when I came to Jesus and repented and believed in Him, those things faded into the background and He became my all and all. As the old Negro spiritual says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. See, that's the mark of a work of God that you, are, you turn, you turn from idols and Jesus becomes your king. He becomes your Lord. Now, in uh, my Bible, I have circled two words that maybe you want to circle or underline in your Bible. In verse 9, I've circled the word to serve. And in verse 10, I've circled the word to wait. To serve and to wait. To serve and to wait. What are we are doing? We are serving King Jesus. He is now our Lord and we are waiting for Him, for Him to return. You know, but this waiting, this waiting for King Jesus, it's not a passive waiting. We're just waiting around passively for King Jesus. No, it's an active waiting. Let me give you an, let me give you an illustration. On Friday night, uh, my daughter, I, I was running late to pick up my girls from youth group. So I was about 10 past nine. And so Emma called me and I said, Emma, what I want you to do is please, please be out the front of the cafe and get your sisters, get, get Ava and Isabella and go bring them and, and meet me out the front of the cafe just as soon as I get there because I didn't have any shoes on <laughs> and I didn't look dressed to meet up with anyone. I just wanted to stay in my car. And sure enough, when I got there, Emma was waiting for me. She'd followed my instructions. She had Isabella and Ava with her. And you see, this is the type of waiting that we are now doing. We are waiting for the return of Jesus. But it is an active waiting where day by day we are doing what Jesus wants from us. We're doing what he commanded us and we are looking to him to come from heaven to deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, I believe that wrath to come and what Paul is referring to here is the tribulation period. 
is the Bible says that there is coming a great tribulation period in the book of Revelation. There is coming a great day of wrath upon the earth. And it's coming soon. But Christians are waiting, awaiting for Jesus. Now, why we wait for Jesus, it's not like we just, you know, don't get married and we, you know, don't have jobs and all of that sort of stuff. No, 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 no. Paul is going to say to the Thessalonians, you need to live a quiet life. You need to live a godly life as you await for the return of Christ. So it's nothing like that. But this waiting is a soberness. There's a soberness because we know that there's a day of wrath coming and we know that we are only saved by that day of wrath, from that day of wrath, through the work of Jesus, the Son. So do you see the marks? Do you see, do, do you see the marks of a genuine work of God? It is seen in the way the gospel comes. It doesn't just come in word, but it comes in power, in the Holy Spirit, in great conviction. The way the gospel is received, it's received even in affliction with joy, supernatural joy that comes from Jesus. The way, the difference the gospel makes, it turns you into a person that has a testimony of what you were before you came to Jesus and now who you are after you came to Jesus. And the change the gospel makes is it transforms you. You are converted from serving idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son who comes from heaven. Now this is an encouraging message. This is supposed to be an encouraging message for you here today. Because here's the encouragement, guys. Here's the encouragement. If you look in your life and you can see these things, like if, if you can think back and there was a moment when the gospel rang true to you and God spoke to you. And if there was, and if you do have supernatural joy, now as I said, Christian's joy will go up and down, but if you do have supernatural joy that's unexplainable in your life, and if you do have a testimony, not a perfect testimony, but you're not the same person you once were now that you've come to Jesus, and if your heart has been transformed so you no longer serve idols, but you are now serving King Jesus and you're waiting for Him, then guess what? I've got good news for you. God has chosen you. God loves you. You're part of His chosen people. None of that work was because of you. It was because of God. God worked. The song of heaven is not going to be, how awesome are you? The song of heaven is going to be, blessed is the Lamb who was slain, who has ransomed a people for Himself from all nations. That's going to be the song of heaven. But there's also a warning here today. There's a warning here today. If the gospel never came to you in power, it's only just been something you've always believed because your parents sort of believed it and you grew up in it. And it's something you just sort of confess, but you never, not really real to you. And if you don't have that supernatural joy, and if you don't have a testimony, really, that you can't actually see a testimony of what you were and how you are now. And if you haven't really been changed to serve Jesus and to wait for Him, then maybe, maybe you're yet to come. Maybe you're yet to come to Christ. But let me tell you something. Now hear me very carefully this morning. The doctrine of election 
is for believers. It's not for you. Rather, the gospel is freely offered to you. For whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. And will you come today? Will you come today? Will your heart, will you soften your heart to the Lord and truly come today? Recognize that you are a sinner, broken all of his law, but God is good. He died for you on the cross to reconcile you to himself. Will you come today? I've sat, I've preached from this pulpit for 10 years to people who I dead set would have thought were Christians. But time has shown they're not. And so I never want to preach a message where I don't say, come, come, come today. Christ is calling, come today. Christ is calling, come today. Make sure, make sure of your salvation today. Make sure of it and come to him today. Let me pray.